Screenless. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. So, uh, yeah, you, you can get it in front of him. Yeah, you sure about that? Yeah, great. Well, I've, I've put a big 808 kick underneath it, and I've got the latest midi packs. So we're, I think we should be, what, Dan? be pretty good. Then. Oh, hang on, hang on, one sec. Oh, hey, sorry, are you on I, the phone? I am, yeah, yeah, just one second. So, yeah, so you know Dan, you know, Dan, you know, Jay-Z's pool guy. It's so a bit unprofessional. Of him. Yeah. That's, that's Dan! Right, oh, God, sorry, I've got to go. Bye, bye, bye. Yes, what sorry. What are you doing? Sorry. What are you, oh, well, what I was are you, on the what phone. What are you up to? Well, there's, there's, so we're doing the podcast. Yeah, yeah, and it's all about the producer. So I'm being a producer. So I've got, uh, I've, I've made this amazing fat beat. I've got an 808 kick under it, latest MIDI packs. Oh. And I know a guy who knows the pool guy for Jay-Z, and he's just sort of going to give him the cassette. It's, it's a shoo-in, <laughs> mate. It's a shoo-in. Dan, I'm not sure you've understood completely what we're doing. Well, it's about the producer. Yeah, yeah, this is about the TV producer though, isn't it? TV producer? Hang on. Right, okay, so, TV producer, got it. That's right, that's right. Do we have uh, the joy of Tristan's company today? Yes, I believe so. He should be on his way. He sent me a text earlier, he just said he was... Well, he was... He said he was just on the water. I don't know what he meant by that. On the water? Yeah, but he was on his way. It is a lovely day. It's a beautiful... Whoa, what's... what's... Is that a boat? It looks like a speedboat. Doing on the Thames. Oh! Whoa! Oh, my God, oh, that's Tristan. Yeah, so he's on the fun. back of it. Okay, well, he's water skiing. What's up, guys? How's it going? Oh, tell you what, Tris, it's looking a bit tight, that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd put on the uh, the cycling stuff underneath this. It's just, you know, just what I'm used to with cycling, so... Hang on, let me get a towel for your chair. <laughs> Don't drip on the carpet. <laughs> oh, Tris. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so we're all here. We're all here. For the final episode of Season 2 of <sighs> Making a Soundtrack. Thank so you soon. for keeping up, if you're still with us. <laughs> Uh, so, yes, this episode is all about the TV producer. So the person who is there right from the start, before any music is involved, before yeah. a shot of film has been shot, and who is involved in commissioning the music for the TV programme or film. So, yeah, the TV producer is basically there from the very start. Yeah. Almost from inception all the way through to the end. Just guiding, setting things up putting everything in place, making sure it all runs, making sure that everything gets delivered, uh, overseeing how all the different elements are put together. It's, it's, it's a heck of a task. Yeah, so that's what they do. Um, it's a similar thing to music producer. The music producer does the same thing, but it's obviously a music producer is on a much smaller scale because you're overseeing certain elements, but you haven't got like four different sound departments. You're not expecting stuff from Foley from special effects, from dialogue, and from music, you know. So mm. you, you're, as a music producer, you're only really looking after the music and the elements in that. But for a TV producer, they're looking after the whole sound of the TV show, all the visuals, the script, the actors, the locations, you name it. Yeah, it's amazing, really, isn't it? Yeah. 
it's quite a responsibility to be overseeing all of that. Huge. But then, as we've seen over the course of the series, they will be relying on the expertise of every single person in that ecosystem, including the whole process for the score. There are loads and loads of people involved, aren't there? There are, and you always have a head of department. So it's yeah. you know it's a little bit like a pyramid scheme. There's somebody at the top, and then a couple of people below, mm-hmm. and then below them, there's a couple of people, and out it goes. So you've always got your head of departments who are in charge of stuff, and then under there are all the hundreds of people who yeah. do lots and lots of work, which all then gets put together at the end to make the TV show. And what struck me, actually, is that despite there being an amazing communication process, the communication tends to extend only a short distance. So, you know, if you're Maxine Kwok, you're communicating basically with a conductor, mm-hmm. and then you don't need to worry yourself about what the producer's thinking in the booth. Yeah. You just need to excel at what you're doing in front of you. Yeah. Seems that way. Yeah. What have your favourite parts of this series been, both of you? So I really enjoyed the last episode, which was the dubbing mixer, because as comes up again in this one, um, the dub is my favourite thing. It's where all the magic happens. Everything comes together, uh, picture, audio, and it just that's when it becomes a whole TV show. So talking to Mark in the last episode was great. I mean, there's been so many. I mean, talking to Alistair about the orchestration and one thing that struck me is communication and communication is key. Mm. And the amount of it's all right when when it's musicians talking to musicians, but when it's musicians not talking to musicians, the way that you us as musicians have to interpret things and also the way we communicate has to be very clear and not full of jargon. Yeah, I guess there are points, aren't there, where people aren't speaking to people who understand what they're talking about clearly. So the language has to be adjusted. You find that, Tristan, don't you, in your line of work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just echoing back to what Dan was saying about the communication, that is exactly what I would have said. Across the whole series, there's been a thread of communication is key. And it's so important if you want to get the best out of people, you've got to be able to communicate. It doesn't matter how good you are at your job. If you can't communicate, the whole thing sort of, crumbles and falls to pieces but in terms of my favorite my favorite episode was definitely the one with Maxine purely because everything coming together at yeah. that point in the process when the music actually gets yeah. performed and without people like Maxine as great as samples are we'd all just be using samples for, for everything and that would be a shame yeah and as a, an orchestrator and a composer for you that's your point of context I suppose for a, someone like a scriptwriter their highlight would be seeing their words come to life when the actors come in and yeah. and start acting it. Yeah, exactly. It's a very, very similar thing. So it's just amazing hearing her talk about her session experience and and what it's like to sort of be on the front line of <laughs> of music performing. So what about you, Gareth? Oh, it's it's really difficult to highlight a particular point in the process. Um, I, I do agree with Tristan. You know, mm. it must be such a thrill for all the people involved up to the point where that music is is alive and sound waves in the air, physical, from these brilliant musicians and and uh, wonderful instruments in such an, an amazing surrounding yeah. as well. Do you know what always sort of blows my mind is that you can have a a, a situation where like. Literally a few days earlier, the music purely existed inside Logic or something or, or whatever the the yeah. AW of the composers using, and then suddenly a few days later, it's actually being performed by the best musicians, and they're putting their heart and soul into it. And I, I just find that amazing. 
So when we started this series, the whole tagline, if you want, was to shine a light on all of the people it takes to make a orchestral score. Do you think we've achieved that? I think in terms of when you're talking about heads of department, yeah. I think in terms of the broad spectrum of people who have to be there to make it happen. Yeah. Yes. Could go definitely. down the, you know, each composer might have an assistant, maybe two assistants. They might, they might have of a course. T-boy. They yeah. may even have, they may even run a studio, you know. Some composers run studios. Or a T-girl, Dan. Or a T-girl. Yeah, or a T-girl. <laughs> you know, Tristan will know very well that sometimes there'll be an orchestrator who needs a hand. Yeah, or an orchestrate her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That is good. Okay, so today's episode, the TV producer is Erica Hosington. Yes. Who has very kindly agreed to chat with us. And uh, Tristan did uh, another wonderful interview with Erica. Uh, with you. us looking on, chuckling and nodding being and, and nodding and being amazed by yeah, the stories. Some great ones as well. So Dan, uh, you've been collecting facts about, well, I say facts. <laughs> it's been an interesting little uh, feature, uh, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to a break from the uh, from the Fandangos. I could say something there, but I won't. They take way <laughs> too long time. They take way too long time to sort out. So, for the final time this season, Fandango! Erica has been a TV producer for the past 15 years and has worked on shows such as Frankie, Casualty, Holby City and the critically acclaimed Lang Girls. She's a trained musician, but her use of graphic score techniques has unfortunately led them to only ever being played after the watershed. In high school, she fronted a punk band called Eat My Fist, whose first single, Vivian's Westworld, was produced by Trevor Horn. Her favourite colour is Skobolov, her favourite biscuit is a double chocolate cookie, and she once smuggled a baboon across the American-Mexican border, but she can't remember why. That was uh, wonderful of you and the internet, Dan. So shall we go behind the scenes? Yes, let's. Thanks for joining us, Erica. In terms of a general overview, what does the producer of a TV series do? Well, that's like the $64 million question. What does a TV drama producer do? The question maybe should be, what does a TV drama producer not do? I was trying to think of a music analogy, as we're all musicians and talking on that level. But it's really quite hard because the producer really leads the production from the front, a bit like a general of an army, but on the ground. So you've got your people who are in the distance, if you like, the execs, the commissioners, the channels, everything in the background. But the producer is the person who is on the ground with the production, with everybody, leading that all the way through from the beginning to the end. And the beginning to the end is quite a long road because you start like music on paper with your words instead of your notes. And you have to make sure that your scripts are as good or as robust as they can be before you go into production, which is when the money starts to, to play. Exactly like taking music from the page into the studio with the orchestra. So it's kind of a really similar process. It's a creative process, but it's also a practical and pragmatic process, which requires lots of different skills. So if I give you an example, I've worked on both series and continuing drama. 
And the jobs are very similar, but also quite subtle as well in their differences. So on a series, you would start literally with the scripts, with the executive producer, maybe the director's on board or not on board, and then you go from there. You cast it, you put all your heads of department in, design, costume, makeup, location, and bit by bit you piece it together. You then set into pre-production where you do all the planning. You then go into production where you shoot and then into post-production. And the producer is there literally right from the beginning, right to the end. It's a wonderful job because it's really varied. No two days are the same. No two productions are the same. You could do a first series of something and then a second series of it, and it will be entirely different. Variety really is the spice of life. And I feel very fortunate that I'm able to do it because I absolutely love it. And bearing in mind, you work long hours. You can be standing on a mountain at minus nine degrees in Manchester in the winter, which I have done. You have to love it. Otherwise, I think it would be the hardest job in the world, but it isn't. It's the most wonderful job in the world. And I feel very privileged to be able to do it. So at what point would you start talking with the composer about what's needed in a TV show soundtrack? Is that pre-production or or post? No, it it absolutely is part of the pre-production process. So when you start with your scripts, as you go through the process of bringing all the people on board who are going to make the programme, because I've always said, wouldn't it be wonderful if when your script or well, your score then, let's say, if you, wouldn't it be wonderful if what you did then is you ran into a room which had six million people in it, waved it in the air and said, here it is, it's perfect. The work really starts, doesn't it, after that, you know. So that's your blueprint. How you bring that off the page to life is the real creative process. And the composer is very much a part of that. So on all the series I've worked on, we have very much got the composer on board pretty much before we shot a frame of the piece. So we send the script to the composer and then invite the composer in for a meeting and see what the composer feels about the material, the characters, what the score should feel like, should sound like, you know, what the sonic language of the show is going to be, basically. And that's how you're then able to choose who you feel is the best match with your vision for the piece, the tone and the feel of it, because the music is a very, very important part of that. Yeah. So as we've said, there are lots of people involved in the making of an orchestral soundtrack. How do you get involved with the notes and revisions and who do you communicate with? Well, I'm sort of a special case, I think, because I did a music degree. So it's very different for me as a producer commissioning and working with a composer on a soundtrack for a television series. And it's also a very different experience for the composer. And I have to be very aware of that because composers mostly deal with producers, directors, execs who are not musicians. And one of the things I absolutely marvel at is how they are able to transmute notes that they get from non-musicians into meaningful changes to their scores. Because I have to tell you, I have sat in rooms with composers getting notes from my colleagues and I would have not a scooby on what I would do to interpret that note. Oh, it's a bit hard. Oh, I don't know if that's really feeling right. (laughs) You know, I'm saying, "Mm, I don't like that augmented fourth bit. That's the language I'm talking. And I also have to be very aware that I don't get too much into a, a huddle 
here's me and the other muso having this wonderful sort of conversation which nobody yeah. else is a part of mm. so my answer simply to your question is how involved am i with every part i i am all over it i've got the score in front of me i'm reading it as we're playing it i'm looking at all the the expression marks yeah. even before a note is played I'm looking at the score with the composer and talking it through with the electronic track. So I'm very, very involved in that process. And I've been really, really fortunate that the composers I've worked with have allowed me to have my musical voice in that score. And that is incredibly generous of them. And I thank them for that from the bottom of my heart, because otherwise it would be really hard for me not to because I understand it in that way. You worked on Langos, where the amazing Debbie Wiseman scored for a 20-piece orchestra. What was that process like? Land Girls was the first series that I produced that I commissioned music for. So Debbie Wiseman was the first composer I ever worked with. And what an amazing experience it was. Debbie is a wonderful person, let alone a phenomenally talented composer. And when we made Land Girls, we had a very clear idea of what we wanted. We had a very, very low budget. It was a period drama. And we knew that we would have to have a score. Debbie came on board with us very, very quickly and wrote the theme, which we loved. We felt it really fitted. We had four different images, which were production stills, from Powell and Pressburger films. And those four images formed the basis of our vision for the show. So what we sent to Debbie were the scripts and those four images. And because it was a female-led piece, she came up with this really, I mean, it was instantly memorable. I mean, I don't know, it's like a good headline, isn't it? Or a fantastic advertising slogan. When somebody writes the theme tune, which has got a fantastic melody, which instantly goes in your head and you can remember it mm. straight away. It's a pure gift. And then you can't remember life before it. Do you know what I mean? It was always there. And that theme became such a part of the series and the DNA of the show. From the beginning, it was amazing. And we had the theme. So we used the feel, the tone, the sonic language of the theme then to inform the guide soundtrack that we put on the edit. So it was really sort of seamless. When Debbie was getting the material then and the cut programs with the guide on it, it was very evocative of the theme that she'd already written. And it made it a really joyous process for everybody because nobody was at odds with each other. You know, we were all working together and her studio is in her home, which is just such a lovely place to go and listen. When we went to listen to the guide that she'd written in our spotting session, it was myself, the executive producer, Will Trotter, and the director, Steve Hughes. And there was no real effort required from any of us because it was just so perfect. It was literally like, can we just start that a bit later? Or could we maybe bring this in here? Or... You know, there were different sort of effects, like she had a lot of tremolo strings because there was a lot of tension in that first episode and it was about the placing of that. And then when we went into the studio to record, I have to tell you, it was the most best day of my life. I'd never done that before. It was in Air Studios, which was just so exciting going there. And the whole experience, just listening to the players actually playing it, 
to the pictures. It was just wonderful. And Debbie has worked prolifically with Will on all of his programmes. And it's such a happy collaboration. I can see why that happened. And it all started with Lang Girls. That was my first ever trip into the studio with an orchestra. It didn't matter that there were only 20 players. I felt like the queen of the world that day, sat in the gallery listening mm. and watching them. It was, it was just wonderful. It's interesting, isn't it? Because just on a complete side note, the way the studio is just makes everything sound so much bigger than it is. I mean, a small number of players just sounds like double the numbers. So Yes, it really, really does. And one of the big things that I always say to other producers about a score is that music in a drama has got the reputation of being expensive. And you know what? That's not necessarily the case. It's a common misconception. And in fact, the money that you invest or you spend on your score... I think you get far more value for that within your piece than, I don't know, if you had two extra actors or two extra parts in the show or you had a couple of extra days filming. I think the value that it brings to a drama is worth every single penny. And so that would be my message to any producers listening. Please don't dismiss it out of hand in that you can't afford it. You probably can. You just have to be a bit clever in robbing Peter to pay Paul to make it happen. But the value that it brings to your drama is priceless. Can we get that written on a placard and just have you walking around London? That would be brilliant. Honestly, if I told you what the budget for Langville's was, your hair would curl because it was such a low budget. Mm. I look back now and I don't even know how we did it. We did it because every single person making that show wanted to make it a really good show. But the music was absolutely worth Every Can you imagine that series without the music? No. It was absolutely intrinsic to it. I'm so, so glad that we did it and we insisted that it was proper recording because that's the other thing where you can, again, musicians have a reputation for being very expensive, but there is no substitute for live players. And also nowadays, very, very clever ways that you can make that sound as if you've got a lot more players than you actually have. So producers everywhere, don't rule it out, always rule it in, is my message. Completely agree. (laughs) You then went on to be series producer on Casualty and brought music back to the show, culminating with a score by Jeremy Holland Smith using a 100-piece orchestra. What was your thinking behind that, and what do you think it brought to the episode? Well, this is actually a, a really long story. But it's a story I want to tell because it gives me a chance to do a fantastic name drop. So bear with me. (laughs) I've always got amazing stories about how I meet people. In between Lang Girls and Casualty, I did a series called Frankie. Because of my musical background, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of musicians. And I knew Joby Talbot, a very, very good friend of mine who I was at school with, an opera singer called Hilary Summers. And Hilary sang on the Divine Comedies album, Fandacicla. And I met Joby through her. She did some singing for me and he was her accompanist. So when I was doing Frankie, I had this absolute dream that Joby might do the music for me. And Joby hadn't done television for a very, very long time. And I remember thinking, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to give it a go. And so I, I wrote to his agent and said, look, I'm doing this series. I know Joby hasn't done telly for ages. I'd love him to do the theme. And if I don't ask, you know, I don't mind if the answer's no, but I'm always going to ask the question. Well, the answer was yes. Can you believe it? So we had a lovely meeting with Joby and he said, look, I really want to do the theme, but I honestly can't do the music for the whole series. But I've got a composer that I work with who I will collaborate with on the theme and who would be wonderful then to score the series. And that person was Jeremy Holland Smith. 
And so that's how I met Jeremy. And that's how I also discovered how a lot of composers work, because that wasn't my experience prior to that. So Joby wrote the theme, which was just fantastic and very Joby-esque. And we recorded it in Jeremy's studio in Bristol. And then Joby, I think he went on then, he was writing one of his ballets, his second ballet, The Winter's Tale. So he was off very busy doing that. And Jeremy then took over the score. And that was the first time that we'd worked together. Takes a long time sometimes, but you find individual people that you work with and it becomes very, very special. And that is my relationship with Jeremy. It's incredibly special. He is like my work husband. Uh, And I can say that because I love Kate, his wife, and we're very, very good friends. And she's a fellow Welshie, so she gets it. So it's not an issue. (laughs) But Jeremy and I are, I don't know, there is some connection musically between us. We have very similar tastes. And we've got a very good sense of each other's musicality as well. So, and, and for me, it, it's been the most special collaboration. I can't sort of describe it really. It's just one of those really amazingly special things. So that's how I met Jeremy and Jeremy scored Frankie for us. And then after Frankie, I went on to Casualty and we were doing quite a big reboot of the show. And one of the things that I wanted to do was redo the titles music because the music had been the same since the late 90s. And I felt that it felt sonically very dated. And I thought, we're going to have some nice new pictures for the titles. It would be great to redo the theme. And that's how Jeremy became involved in Casualty. So the first thing we did was he reorchestrated the theme, brought back the beginning, which was on the show originally 30 years previously and hadn't been used, and also then created some dings and some other music that we started using in the programme for the endings and the beginnings and odd moments throughout. But music wasn't a part of the show's language then. But we sort of introduced it slightly. We did that. I think we had a couple of years before the anniversary was looming. And then when we came to do the anniversary episode, we had to make a feature length episode, which is double the length of a normal episode. So a normal episode of Casualty is 50 minutes. So all of a sudden we had a 110 minute drama and that's quite a big piece and very, very hard to sustain without any score. So I'll go back to what I was saying earlier about how you can afford music and how you make music a part of a program in a really important way. We basically decided that we would lose a stunt because we had so many stunts in the episode anyway, and we would replace that with a score. And not only a score, a score with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, so a 100-piece orchestra. It was the most exciting decision and it was also the most risky decision because, you know, you're introducing an element to a programme that's 30 years old that an audience isn't expecting. And Mm, one of the things we decided was that very much up front, we would tell the audience that the show was going to be scored because otherwise it would have completely the opposite effect to what you're wanting, which is to underpin the drama and the emotion of the stories that you were telling. And it was a really, really big, really big emotional and dramatic episode it had to be 30 years of casualty really demanded that and it was so special so it took a lot of work it was an awful amount of work and a lot of different people and a lot of different voices in terms of what was wanted and what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable jeremy sailed through it like the pro that he is we spent a lot of hours (laughs) in his studio in Bristol, fine tuning it, you know, getting it just right, listening to everybody, factoring everybody's notes in. And then we actually recorded it with the orchestra in Hoddenot Hall, 
which for me was incredible because when I did my music degree at Cardiff, Alan Hoddenot was my professor. I don't know how or, or why, but in my final year, he decided to um, revisit his 20th century composers lectures, which he hadn't done for about 15 years. And I was lucky enough to be in the room. And I was also on the staff student committee that year, which meant going in his office and smoking fags and drinking whiskey, which was, which was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that being my only experience of a living composer prime to working in television. So I had very high expectations of composers when I, when I started working <laughs> with them in television. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you whether they lived up to those expectations <laughs> or not, but there we are. So we're in Hoddenot Hall with a hundred piece orchestra. And I remember Jeremy very cleverly introduced this fabulous sort of timpani role for the beginning of the casualty theme tune, which obviously it wasn't it originally. And when we were recording it and he, he said, right, we're going to re-record. We'll do another version of the theme because I, I said, oh, no, great. Let's do it. You know, let's, he said, cause I've just changed the orchestration somewhat. And I just remember, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. So we did the recording and then we did the mix and everything. And it was just, it was just wonderful. And then in an amazing stroke of luck, which I still can't believe it happened. The BBC really wanted to let ordinary members of the public experience this. And so we did a live screening. So we did a screening with the orchestra. Oh, wow. Which Jeremy conducted again in Hoddenot Hall with a question and answer session afterwards. And it was just the most amazing experience. And we'd been rehearsing for a couple of days. And on the day of the screening, I'd actually seen the episode and listened to it three times before we got to the actual screening in the evening. So I spent my screening in the audience, feeling, listening to the audience's reaction, which was just such a privilege. You know, when do you ever get to do that, to feel mm. an audience's reaction to something that's going out on the telly? And all I can tell you is after the opening theme with the Timps, we go into the first frame of the show and the audience were spontaneous applause after the end of the theme tune. And that kind of set the tone for the whole of it. And we did this fab Q&A session afterwards. And Derek Thompson, who plays Charlie, who's obviously been in the show from the beginning, was on the panel. Um, the first question, so Derek, you know, what was it like after 30 years, you know, what do you think of the episode? And he just stood up and he just said, we've got a band. <laughs> and that was the vibe of the night, you know, and it was just amazing. And it's moments like that that bring you into a moment where you just think this is what it means. This is what it does. Look at these people, feel the vibe, feel the energy mm. in this room that that music has generated. Quite apart from all the fantastic action, I mean, goodness me, the anniversary episode was an endeavour on everybody's part. Mm. A creative collaboration, which was hard and brilliant and challenging and all of those things. But that really was the cherry on the top of the cake to have that screening with that orchestra. It was just incredible and I'll never, ever forget it. It definitely is the high point of my working life. What a lucky person I am. Well, thank you for sharing it. In the overall process, is there anything else you have to do once the dub is done? Is there sales or promotion or anything else we might be missing? Well, that's where it's great being the producer because you get to do you get to do all the, the hard work of, of the making and the finishing of the programme. 
But as far as afterwards, the rights and everything are pretty much taken care of in the contracting. But I'm responsible for the compliance, uh, for editorial policy, and also for sound. You have to make sure that the sound is within the parameters. And actually, you have to be really, really careful because it's really easy to push things outside of those parameters. And what you don't want is your programme, which you've carefully crafted and graded and mixed and done all those things to when it then goes to transmission if it fails a transmission test <laughs> as, as as one composer said to me well they better not compress my school to shit. <laughs> really made me laugh sorry i'm not supposed to say that but that that was that's a quote because compression is i mean it's a word that i've come to loathe actually compression flattens it out doesn't it it flattens yeah. out your yeah. carefully crafted mix mm. and believe me one of the things that i was shocked about is how much time it takes two things one to get the actual mix of the score correct and where it sits then in the layers of sound so there are times where you have dialogue effect score in that order if you like sometimes it's dialogue score effects sometimes it's score effects sometimes it's score do you know what i mean so and that is amazing to me that is as enjoyable as creating the music in the first place, composing it, you know, arranging it, what instruments are we going to use, all of that sort of thing. It's such a creative process, but also such a technical process as well. But I really enjoy both of those elements. So in answer to your question, that's the only thing I'm, as a producer, really bothered about once the show has left me, is that nobody else is going to be able to meddle with the hard work that you've done across all of the different stages of of getting it to that point yeah because you want you want the audience to feel it see it hear it as you've intended it and technically it has to be spot on and how do you like to enjoy the finished show <laughs> well do you know one of the great things about making television drama is that it's normally quite a few months from when you finish making your program to when it is so it means you can forget all the really awful problems you've had or the challenges, the night shoots that you had to pull or someone being ill or I don't know. I remember once we had a player who was breathing really loudly in a massive solo moment and it was, how are we going to say, can you stop breathing, please? Or, you know, it was just, it was terrible because they were really getting into, you know, the, the performance that they were doing. <laughs> you know, you forget all of that. And I really like sitting watching it on a normal telly. I've normally got Twitter up to see how the audience are reacting in the moment because you want to know if you've hit all the right buttons. So it's really satisfying when somebody says, oh, I really hate this person. You think, eh, you're supposed to, you know. <laughs> it's, so it's quite an interactive experience these days, you know, and that's changed. I mean, I've been producing drama since 2006, and that certainly wasn't the case mm. with Land Girls, with those, you know, with those first couple of series of Land Girls. Social media wasn't what it is now. No. But it's just really, really satisfying. I remember Land Girls was originally meant to go out at 2.15 in the afternoon and Myself and Will and Steve really worked on our first two episodes. Steve directed the first two episodes and we sent them to London for the head of daytime to watch. And we were all sort of like a bit, you know, a bit nervous, you know, first time he'd really seen anything that we'd done. Lovely fella called Liam Keelan, who's now head of Disney Plus in the UK. And I just remember all of a sudden it wasn't going out to quarter past two. It was going out in the neighbour slot. Everything changed overnight. 
And then it won the Broadcast Award for Best Daytime Programme and Ofcom praised it for taking daytime programme into another level. So that is one of the best things that can ever happen. And everything about it was just wonderful. I always remember sitting in the edit suite watching Steve's cut of those first two episodes of Land Girls. And he was right at the back of the suite and I was, I was there. And, and I literally, I don't know if it was relief I don't know what it was, but I literally, I lost it. And I literally turned around to my face. I must have looked like a hot mess. I was crying. I was just, and he was like, oh, and I went, it's fantastic. <laughs> there you go. And, and the score had a lot to do with that. It's so brilliant. You get so many great moments. And when I look back, pretty much all of my great moments have involved music. And what's next for you? And is Holby City going to get an orchestra? <laughs> well, wouldn't that be great? I mean, we did talk about after the anniversary, I think to do music in a continuing show is hard. You know, so Casualty do about 43 or 44 episodes a year. There are two uh, blocks filming four episodes at any one time. It's a finely tuned machine and Holby make 52 episodes a year. So again, the same four episodes at any one time, you know, it's very, very hard. And I think it would probably drive a composer crackers to have to create the score for that many hours of programming. The shows are doing it uh, a bit, but I think to have an orchestra do it, it would be such a discipline. And I don't know if it would give the shows what you would ideally want from it, if you see what I mean from a score. I think it might have the opposite effect of, of what yeah. you want. But I think it would be brilliant if we could do it. And if I ever went to work on those shows again, I would certainly be pushing for it from the front. You can rely on that. Well, thank you for joining us, Erica. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And uh, we really appreciate you giving up your time to, to chat to us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure for me to talk music with music people. That I can't think of a better way to have spent the last hour or so. Thanks ever so much <laughs> for asking me. Well, what a lovely interview with Erica there. Thank you, Tristan, for another fantastic Yeah, chat. another great one, Tris. Really interesting from a very different perspective, actually, the, the overview of everything. Mm, yeah. Do you know what I thought was quite interesting is it, one of the first things she said was being a producer was like being a general on the ground. And it, it, yeah. it, it, it took me back to what Dan was saying in the opening scene about being the head of department, because obviously as the composer... You know, you're a head of department as well and you're overseeing a team of people all working around each other and ch trying to achieve the best result possible. And I just think seeing these sort of links between the different parts of the process are quite interesting. And yeah. communication again, brought up straight, almost yeah. straight away. Communication is key. Uh, she has to be communicating with lots of different heads of departments. And, and the fact that, the, you know, if she can, she'll bring the composer in at script level as well. Yeah. Well, that ties in with the communication as well, exactly. isn't it? To have, exactly. have them on board during pre-production. Yeah. What was unique about Erica was that she is a musician. Yeah. So that puts her in a very unique position in the producer world. And it was really interesting that she was saying there is a, a risk there that she could get in a huddle with the composer. And yeah. uh, that kind of flips it on its head. Yeah, it? yeah, you can't be too sort of excluding everybody else in the room, which is, mm. you know, 
goes back to what I said at the beginning. It's it's important that you can decode things that are said to you, but it's also important that you can talk in a way that includes everyone without yeah. excluding someone. Yeah, I once worked with a director and I mentioned arpeggio once and for the rest of the spotting <laughs> session it was just arpeggio this and arpeggio oh, that. And yeah. they they obviously felt a little out of their depth and I didn't do a good enough job of making them feel comfortable about talking mm. about general moods yeah. and they latched on t- to something that they mm. thought was musical and just went with it. <laughs> yeah. I guess that means that Erica is in a really good position there mm. where she can be the filter. Yeah. Yeah. Between the composer and the Absolutely. producer. That's probably quite a rarity that <clears throat> a producer would have a, a musical background like that and be able to decipher key musical terms because like you know Dan was saying I think when you're talking to those sorts of people you want to keep it generally neutral and and not musical basically anti-musical and you just want to talk about the feeling of the music and the mood of the music and i think erica is obviously able to drill down to a a deeper level than that Mm. yeah yeah Yeah. definitely i also like the the comment about the theme tune that it was like a, a headline or a great advert if you get a good theme tune david arnold once mentioned about theme tunes about them being like the shop window Mm. so that's kind of, you know, that's your shop window and it shows you what's going to happen to a degree inside. Um, again, headline or great advert, I think is a, a spot on call for a, a yeah. theme tune. And some uh, amazing name drops there. There uh, were, yeah. Debbie yeah. Wiseman, Steve Hughes, Joby Talbot, Jeremy Holland-Smith, uh, Jeremy's wife, Kate, <laughs> Alan Podenot. A couple of those being uh, previous Making Soundtrack guests, of course. Yeah. Just what an, an amazing group of creative people that she lives around. It's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I also thought when she mentioned the casualty special uh, and the length of it, I thought it was very interesting that she brought up that because it was a double length episode, that that was too long to go without music. I, th- yes. I, I just think that yes. that's a really interesting thing. You know, you can go so long, but then you can't. I mean, obviously now casualty as the wonderful Justine Barker yeah, doing yeah. music for. And uh, it's fab. It's fab. It really, really adds to the show. But yeah, I just thought that was an interesting yeah. point, the length that you can get away with without music. Uh, it got me thinking. And then every time I've been watching telly since then, I've been making a note of how long something is, where the music's used and stuff, which I haven't done for years. And you, know, you do when you first start, don't you? You start thinking about how music mm. is used. And then after a while, you're just used to working the way you work and stuff. So that that was good because that's actually made me think a little bit more about how music is used and where it's used and the time in between and stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I I just found that very interesting. Yes, absolutely. Where where it's not used as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's just as important as where it's used. 100%. Yeah. So, uh, oh, hang on. Is that the phone? Hang on a minute. Oh. It's all fixed, is it? Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell the boys. Apparently the uh, the TARDIS is fixed. Was that Halfords? Yeah, that's great news. They oh, they had such trouble getting hold of a new time circuit, but they obviously got one eventually. Well, that's great, Tris. Tris that's... Fancy doing the series again? Let's do it. We could go back to the beginning. Yeah, I really like that idea. Let's let's do it. Right, let's go. Let's go now. Let's go. Come on, come let's on. Go. Let's go. All right. See you, Gareth. See you later. Bye bye. Bye. But bye. That's a wrap. 
Oh, that's it then. <laughs> Off they go. Season two of Making a Soundtrack has come to an end. We'd like to thank all of our guests, composer Sagan Akinola, orchestrator Alistair King, copyist Jill Streeter, fixer George Stressoff, conductor Matt Dunkley, violinist Maxine Kwok, recording engineer Paul Golding, mixer Fiona Cruikshank, dubbing mixer Mark Ferder and TV producer Erica Hossington. And of course, you, the listener, thank you very much for joining us. You can hear bonus content at makingasoundtrack.com. And if you have enjoyed the season, do shout about it by giving a positive rating or review and recommend it to other people that's me done i'm off i've got my uh, delorean keys where's my sports almanac ah uh, there it is bye bye for the final time let us pray <laughs> oh. in three two one